0: Let's uh, read together 2nd Corinthians 11. I'm starting at verse 16 in the New American Standard. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish. But if you do receive me even as foolish so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also for you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly for you tolerate it. If anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abram? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, In dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst. And often without food in cold and exposure, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king was guarding the city of Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. Amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the last time we were looking at this chapter, we... Uh, We're considering how the Apostle Paul was defending his ministry from the accusations of the false teachers that had come into the Corinthian church. And uh, he was trying to defend himself so that the congregation wouldn't split. And in that defense, I reminded you of a couple things, three things actually, that by way of contrast, He said, truthful teachers do three things. Number one, they lead the congregation to Jesus Christ in their teaching and in their preaching and by their example. So the true teachers lead the church to Christ. He uses that as a defense against the false teachers. Number two, we saw that a true teacher will love the people of God. He will love the congregation that he serves. And then thirdly, we saw that a true teacher will protect the people of God from theological and doctrinal error. So uh, we we saw those three things, leading them to Christ, uh, loving them, and protecting them. Now, Paul continues in his letter here. Now, you might see, think that he's being a little defensive here, but I don't think he really is when you consider how great a problem he's got on his hands here. Uh, this is a real Threat to the unity of the church, that these teachers could take a sizable group of people away from the congregation, that there could be this real church split. And any of you who have ever been through a church split, you know how awful it can be. Any of you who have ever been in a congregation where there have been intense divisions, um, sometimes brought about because of a teacher uh, coming into their midst and teaching something, and bringing uh, disagreement within the congregation, you know how terrible those times can be. They're some of the worst times in your life. And Paul is very concerned about this. So as you read this, you might think, golly, Paul seems just to go on and on about defending his ministry and his practice. And, and, uh, and But there's good reason for that. And he is trying to show them how earnest he is for them, how much he loves them and cares for them and why they really need to follow him and not these other critics who have come uh, lately into their midst. Now, what I want to do this morning is give you just a two-point outline for the remainder of this chapter, verses 16 to 22, that Paul is answering his critics in this section with what I'm calling a little foolishness, a little foolishness of his own. Now, parenthetically, I... Use this proverb, answering the fool according to their folly. That's my uh, subtext here for this section. Answering the fool according to their folly. And I'll explain what I mean by that proverb. Secondly, Paul not only answers his critics with a little foolishness, but secondly, he answers his critics with proof of his sufferings and his sacrifices for them. Proof of his sufferings and sacrifices as evidence of his commitment to this church and to the people of it. Now, Let's look at verses 16 to 22, and what do I mean by answering with a little foolishness? Look with me at our text, at verse 16, and we'll explore this a little bit. See if we can get an understanding of what Paul's trying to do here. Now, in verse 16 he says, Again I say, let no one think me foolish. Okay, So he says, alright, don't think I'm purposely being foolish. But he says, if you do, receive me even as foolish so that I may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would. So he's saying, this would not be my ordinary course of teaching and writing letters to the church. But, he says, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. So what's he saying here? I think this is what Paul's saying is, ordinarily I wouldn't do this, This is not the way I think ordinarily the Lord would have me carry out my ministry. But here's the problem. You've got guys, teachers, who have come into your midst. They're boasting about their own credentials. And so what I'm going to do is, okay, I will answer the fool according to his folly. Now, if you know Proverbs, there are a couple Proverbs that go like this. Answer the fool according to his folly. And then there's another proverb that says, do not answer the fool according to his folly. Now, you might say, What happened, Solomon? What do you mean? Answer the fool according to his folly. Do not answer the fool according to his folly. Well, I think what Solomon means is this, that we, when we are dealing with a fool, a biblical fool, that is one who is uh, denying God and one who is wise in his own eyes and and is not open to instruction and, and such, when we are dealing with such a person or such a group of people, that we may not answer them as they see themselves as wise in their own eyes, we may not, in our own tone, view ourselves as wise in our own eyes. We must not be proud. We must come with humility. We must recognize that that which we have, we have only by the grace of God. That which we have to offer other people, it is not because we are smarter. It's not because we're more clever. It's not because uh, we are more righteous than other people. We answer the skeptic, the critic, the unbeliever. We answer him not according to his folly. If he is proud, we will be humble. If he thinks he's smart, we will confess our ignorance. We will confess and acknowledge our weakness. If, If he thinks he is the most clever man in the room, we will admit that we are not. I mean, that is, we will not use the same tactics and the same tone that often are used uh, against us people who want to criticize us for being a christian and believing uh, in Jesus Christ and and believing in the bible and believing in creation and believing in all the the doctrines that uh, come with full orb christianity so in that sense we don't answer the fool according to his folly that is we don't participate in the folly ourselves we recognize that uh, we are a creature and that it is God who is the creator. When we do evangelism or when you do apologetics, you always need to do the apologetic on the basis that, that God is God and we are not. He is the creator. We are the creature. What we have, we have derived from Him. Any truth that you have, any insight that you have, any wisdom that you have, it comes from God. It comes from God's Word. It is not of your own making. It's not of your own or, origin. And and so we come with a great humility. So in this sense, we don't answer the fool according to his folly. He believes that he is self-sufficient. He believes or she believes that she is autonomous and she does not need God and she does not need God's word. She will, within the reason of her own mind, come to understand all that is true and not. We do not operate in that fashion. We do not we do not present God in that fashion uh, it, we, we, we do not try to argue from that position or that stance. We argue from the position that we are Christians and, that, and, and we admit that up front and we, and, we as, and we will not try to come to a knowledge of God or God's truth simply uh, on, on our own. We receive the Bible for what it is. It is the revelation of God. It is God's word given to us. So in that sense, Paul is not answering his critics uh, according to their own foolishness. What Paul has comes from God. Paul says this in the beginning of his letters. He, he says, I am an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ. This gospel that I preach to you is not of my own making. It's not of my own origin. It comes from the Lord. And that is the way that the apostle Paul does apologetics. And I think too often when Christians, well-meaning, try to do apologetics, they give too much ground away to the non-believer. And they try to answer the, the fool according to his folly by taking the same stance that they do, and not assuming and, and presuming upon God and his revelation. Now, so what does Paul mean that he's going to answer this, them according to their folly? All right, boys and girls, this is what I think Paul is saying here. He's saying, these guys they think they're apostles. These guys, they think they're important. They think they're somebody in the church. And that, of course, is, is foolishness. Jesus hasn't called them to be an apostle. Uh, Jesus hasn't commissioned them. He hasn't equipped them, etc. So, what Paul is going to do is he is now he is going to answer the fool according to his following. And that is, what he's going to do, he's going to take what they say, and he said, Okay. You guys say you're an apostle? Great. Let me show you how much more I'm an apostle. Okay? He is taking what they say and he is showing them uh, logically and bringing them to a conclusion that they that they need to appreciate. Now, let me show you how he does this. Look at verse 18. He says, Since many boast according to the flesh, he says, I will boast also. Now, again, this is not the way Paul would ordinarily speak of his ministry, but he is making a point here. He's answering the fool according to his folly. He's saying, these guys want to boast? All right, let's do a little boasting together. All right, you guys boast, and I'll boast along with you here. And what does he do? He says to the Corinthians in verse 19, I think he's being sarcastic here, for you being so wise, and I don't think he's being literal here, I think he's kind of saying, you guys who think you're wise... You tolerate the foolish gladly. And, and notice who they tolerate. they tolerate. They're tolerating people who abuse them. They enslave them. They devour them. They take advantage of them. They take their money. Uh, they exalt themselves. And he says, boy, by comparison, I've been rather kind of weak, meek, humble. Maybe I should have been a, more, a little more abusive uh, among you, and maybe I would have gotten greater respect from you. But when I come with humility, I come with self-denial, I come with love. I don't take any offerings from you. I rob from other churches to meet my needs, so that I can continue to minister the gospel free of charge from you. And and you go off with these other guys, these false teachers who are abusing you, exalting themselves, taking your money, and 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 uh, and and he said, Wow, maybe. And again, he's answering the fool according to his folly. Maybe I should have been maybe a little bit harder on you. Maybe I should have been, you know, more selfish. Maybe you would have had greater respect for me. Now, boys and girls, Paul is, is not saying that he really should have been meaner to them. OK, I want you to understand that's not Paul's not saying he really wished he should. He's being he's being uh, with uh, a sense of. Uh, humility here, sarcastic, okay, he, he's being a little sarcastic with them, he's answering the fool, according to their folly, alright, let's keep going, he says, in verse uh, 21, to my shame, I must have, uh, to my shame, I must say, that we have been, weak by comparison, I just explained that, and then he says, but in whatever respect, anyone else is bold, I speak, in foolishness, I am just as bold as myself, he says, are they, Hebrews, all right, so these guys are claiming to be uh, Jews. He's saying, well, I am too. You know, elsewhere, remember what he said in uh, Philippians. He said, you know, I I was an Israelite, I, a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. Remember him saying all that? Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So we see here that he is uh, giving them this, this uh, argument that if they want to go and boast about these things, these false teachers, he can do a little boasting himself, though this foolishness is not his ordinary means of speaking. Uh, now, this idea of foolishness uh, and, and wisdom is something that we see in other parts of the scriptures. In the Corinthian letters, this seems to be a recurring theme. If you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. If you look at verse 21, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, uh, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. So you hear that again, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world. So whether it's the the foolishness of the message or the foolishness of the people that God has chosen or the foolishness of the messenger, that is Paul himself, this theme is is constantly there. And I think it's there because the Greeks, remember, they, they often viewed themselves as wise people. And Paul is always demonstrating here that God often uses the weak, the foolish, to confound the wisdom of the wise. This is why it's important that we not go off with these false teachers who view themselves as wise in their own eyes. But we follow Paul. We follow the gospel. We follow those who acknowledge that they are foolish, that they are weak, and that we look to the wisdom of God. You know, a lot of people today, they they follow these false teachers because Maybe they've got a charismatic personality. Uh, they've got uh, something about them that's you know slick, and and they speak well, and they're very gifted. But uh, they they're not teaching the gospel. They're not sticking to the scriptures the way they should. And yet people get bamboozled uh, by by these teachers. And this still happens today. And and you know and while we praise God for those who are very gifted speakers and very talented men those teachers that God has raised up for His church to help the people of God. You know, God still likes to use very foolish means to answer the foolishness of the world. The world thinks it's wise, but it's really foolish. And God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of the world. Did you get that? You have to think through that, okay? The world thinks it's wise, but it's really foolish. So Paul says God uses the foolishness of Himself in answer to the wisdom of the wise. And God's foolishness is greater than the wisdom of man. So that what we see here is that, boys and girls, is God is just simply telling us that he is so much greater than man. And man in all his so-called wisdom cannot even reach to the level of God's foolishness. And this is a theme that Paul weaves in, in both of his letters. If you look at First Corinthians chapter three, you see this theme again, uh, in verse eighteen and, and following, he said, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, what? He must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God, for it is written, the one who catch excuse me, he who is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And we could go on. So you see, this is a, this is something that's in First Corinthians. It's something that comes up in Second Corinthians. Now, what are we to to make of all all of this talk about foolishness and, and wisdom? This is this is what I think we should take away uh, from this section. If you are here and you think you're wise in your own eyes, you ha- what you need to realize is that you really are foolish. If you are wise in your own eyes, you don't know. Really, anything yet. I remember one time I was in college and um, someone had written on the bathroom wall. Uh, it said, the one thing Davidson teaches you is that you don't know anything at all. And I thought that was actually a fairly wise statement. That the one thing that school was really good at was showing how ignorant you are. And that, and therein begins, I think, some of the the first step to the road to wisdom. What we have to do as, as not just sinners. This is not just because of sin, but it has been exasperated because of sin. But it has to do with the fact that we're creatures. That that as creatures, we are finite. We are small. We are we are insignificant. I mean, when you think about how great the universe is, how how vast it is, and and I'm not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, and every time I hear the facts that are given to me about the the universe, I quickly forget them because they're just mind-numbing about the hundreds of millions of light-years away, and and, and it's difficult to think in those terms, but from what the scientists do tell us, I mean, there are just billions of galaxies out there, and each of these galaxies has millions and hundreds of millions of stars. And, and, and they're... And they're out there and we don't even know where the edge of the universe is. I mean, we, we don't even know where the end of creation is, boys and girls. And, and what is at the end of creation? I, can't even, I don't even know. I don't even understand these things. Some people say that the creation is continuing to expand. It just keeps going out and out. And, and, and is growing and expanding. I don't know. But, but the point is, that when you just reflect on the creation itself, you, you begin to see how small we are, how weak we are. And how foolish we are! I mean, think about parents. Now, I don't want to hurt your feelings, children, but you know, your parents will understand what I mean. You, you parents, you realize, you know how foolish your children are, don't you? I mean, you see their foolishness at times, and and, and you think, oh wow! But you know, every time you see your children's foolishness, what's that other thought that comes? Oh my goodness, these are my children, you know. And, and that means that they, they came from me. This is my foolishness bound up in them. I, 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 I am foolish before God. Uh, I am small. I, I am weak. I am insignificant. I know nothing. And, and you need to come to that point in yourself where you say, you know, I really don't have it, it all figured out. This is something important for those of you students, high school, college students, you're learning big things. You're learning lots of ideas. Uh, and, and there is the temptation that, as Paul says, knowledge puffeth up. And, and it builds up pride. It can build up pride. This is why you need to keep coming back to the scriptures to remind yourself that as much as you are learning, you still, you still don't know anything. Okay? In, in the vast universe of God, you, you are just a speck in the balance. No, that's all you are. In fact, the Bible says that the nations are but a speck in the balance. I mean, take all the nations and all the six billion of us together and combine all our common intelligence and wisdom and and put us in the balance and the balance doesn't even move. Because he says the Bible says that we are but lighter than a speck of dust on on the balance. You know, if if you go and, and you get something weighed, boys and girls, you know, the butcher doesn't, you know, necessarily dust off his scale before he puts the meat on there, right? I mean, the dust isn't gonna isn't gonna charge you anything. That dust not isn't, isn't gonna really count against you, okay? There might be some dust on there, but it doesn't weigh anything. And, and and when he looks at his scale, it still says zero. And that's that's what that's what we're like corporately together. There's there's human intelligence. There's human wisdom piled together, combined together. And it is nothing. You see, what happens is from our perspective is we, we look at, at, at our perspective, you know, just on a, a plain old view. And, we're, and we think, wow, look how great we are. Look at the big buildings we've got. Look at the improvements in medicine we have. Look at, look at how much more clever we are and the gadgets we have than, than our ancestors and as grateful as we are for those blessings that, that the Lord has given us, the Bible says we're still, even with all that, we're still but dust in the balance compared to the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Now, where do I, if, where do I go to get real wisdom? How, how am I delivered from my own folly? And the, how are we delivered from the folly of false teachers? We go back to Jesus Christ. Because what Paul tells us in the book of Colossians is that all knowledge and wisdom is found in Christ. Because Christ is fully God, that when you come to know Jesus Christ, you come to know God. And and when you come to know Christ, you come to know the mind of Christ. And you come to the source of all wisdom and knowledge. You come to the one who was there in the beginning. Christ was there with the Father in the beginning when they said, let there be light. Christ was there in the beginning when the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Christ was there when they made Adam in their image. And Christ has all power and authority who continues to govern, reign, rule, control, everything that's happening. And so we we go to Christ and we say with Thomas, my God and my Lord. And if you have never given your heart to Jesus Christ, I want to urge you this morning to put your faith in Jesus Christ for wisdom and knowledge that you need not only for this life but for the world that is to come. How is it that that the, the, the psalmist can say I am wiser than my teachers in Psalm 119. Now is he saying boys and girls that he as a student is really smarter than his teacher? No, I don't think he's saying that. What's he saying though? He's saying that because he has the scriptures though he has a wisdom from God that maybe even your teachers don't have or maybe some of your teachers that you'll have in the future. Not that you're maybe even more gifted. They may be well, way more gifted than you. But when you have the mind of Christ, you have a, a deep well of wisdom. Well, so Paul answers his critics with a little foolishness of his own. Uh, secondly, he answers his critics in verses 23 to the end of the chapter, with proof of his own sufferings. Verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Let's look again. He says, Are they servants of Christ? Now, who is they? He's speaking about the false teachers. Are these so-called teachers, false teachers, servants of Christ? He says, I speak as if insane. I'm more so. And then he begins to list all the things that he's been through. He says he's worked a lot longer and harder than they have. He's suffered more. He's had to go to jail. He's been beaten. He's been in uh, danger of losing his life. And then he explains that, verse 24. Imagine boys and girls five times receiving 39 lashes. So it's almost 200 lashes on his back. Imagine what his back must have looked like. You know when the Apostle Paul you know, took off his outer garment to go into the pool or something like that, what that back of his must have looked like. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was stoned. You'll remember that when he was in northern Greece and they thought he was dead. He was been shipwrecked. We know about one of those shipwrecks. Uh, it's in the book of Acts. He He never told us about the others, but... But uh, three times, he says, I was shipwrecked. Imagine treading water all day and all night. It's A long time to be treading water. He says, I've been on frequent journeys. He talks about the dangers uh, from his own countrymen, from the Gentiles in the city, out in the country. He has been deprived of basic necessities, sleep, food, drink, Uh, clothing, proper clothing at times, all of these deprivations Paul has suffered for the name and and the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, in this we come to another theme of the apostles that you find regularly in the New Testament, but sadly is often missing from the preaching that you hear on TV. And that is the theme of suffering. Now, what Paul is trying to say in this half of the chapter is that his suffering, he is arguing that his suffering is evidence of his commitment to Jesus Christ and God's people. Notice how he contrasts himself with the false teachers. The false teachers abuse the church. The false teachers take from the church. The false teachers exalt themselves over the church. But what does Paul do? Paul serves the church. Paul suffers for the church. Paul loses everything for the church, including the things that are common to our basic necessities. So Paul is making the argument, you guys are following these teachers. They're Johnny-come-latelys. They're bringing a different message. They're taking from you rather than giving to you. They claim themselves to be apostles, but there really doesn't seem to be much uh, discipleship here. The cost of discipleship doesn't seem to be evident in their life. And I'm showing you the cost of the discipleship for following Jesus Christ. Remember Boys and girls, what Jesus said when the man who was supposed to go and lay his hands on Paul and so that Paul could receive his sight after he had seen the glorious vision of Christ risen on the road to Damascus. And the man said, Aeneas said to Jesus, he said, but isn't this the guy who's been locking us up in prison? And Jesus said, yes, but I will show him how much what? He must suffer For my name's sake. And indeed that's what we see here in this chapter. How much Paul has suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now this theme of suffering is important to Paul's theology. And it needs to be important to your theology. And that is if you are a Christian. We participate in two things. We participate in the humiliation of Jesus. And we participate in the exaltation of Jesus. And it's the humiliation of Jesus, take up your cross and follow me, that we often don't like to have to listen to. But Paul says, well, Paul says, so does Jesus, that if you want to follow him, you have to take up these sufferings. If you really want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must count the cost. And you need to ask yourself, young people, before you commit yourself to publicly following Jesus Christ, you need to seriously ask yourself, are you willing to follow Jesus in his sufferings? Are you willing to follow the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in prison if necessary? Are you willing to go to jail for Jesus if if in the United States they outlaw Christianity? Now you, you might think, well, that's that's crazy, that's apocalyptic, that's... You know, this is America. We have the Constitution. Listen, anything is possible in the providence of God. We do not know what this country will be like in 10 years. We don't know what it will be like in 20, 30, 40 years. I don't know. I'm not saying we're going that way. I'm just saying you do have to count the cost, Jesus said. Even if you're an American, you still have to count the cost. Whether you want to follow Jesus. I remember when I was graduating... And the president of our seminary charged us with being faithful to Jesus unto death. And I remember how the Lord used that just to really grip me with the fact that I am publicly going to serve Jesus Christ in the ministry. And I've just been charged by the president of our seminary that I better be faithful to what I'm about to take up even unto death. I don't think I had ever, I don't know that I had ever really seriously considered that taking this job was going to cost me my life. When I took the calling here at Covenant in LaGrange, I don't know, did I really think one day it might lead to my imprisonment? But that's what Paul says we do have to consider. Even if we do live in the greatest, freest land in the world, we do not know what God's providence may bring. We do not know what a day may bring. And so we really do need to grapple with this text here. We really do need to grapple with the sufferings of Paul, the hardship, the deprivation, the self-denial. And ask ourselves, you know, am I really committed to following Jesus? Now, you know, maybe these are questions that really, truly can be answered only by having to go through these things. I mean, Peter certainly had a lot of self-confidence, didn't he? When Jesus said, hey, you're all going to leave me. Oh, no, not me. Not me, Lord. They may all leave you, but not me. No, I'm Peter. I'm the rock. I won't deny you. See, Peter probably didn't count sufficiently the cost. He thought he was stronger than he was. So, you know, we don't want to presume. Oh, yeah, I'll be faithful, Lord. We'll only be faithful by the grace of Christ, and uh, but nevertheless, we need to count the cost and then pray. God, give us the grace that if we have to pay that cost, that we'll be faithful. That you know, we 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 pray, you know, for faithfulness in life. We need to pray for faithfulness in death too. That we die well. This was one of the hallmarks of the Reformation. Uh, Calvin said, you know. People wanted some evidential proof of the truth, the veracity of what the Protestants were saying, and said, "Our people die well? Our people die well you know uh our culture doesn't like suffering. We've talked a little bit about this. You remember, boys and girls, when I showed you my Verizon brochure or T-Mobile brochure, I can't remember what it was. I'm sure the marketing people would really love to hear that. But uh whatever it was, you remember it was that glossy brochure. And and uh everybody's, you know, uh, every, everybody's young, everybody's happy, everybody's wearing nice clothing. Of course they're you know, they're on their phones and whatever. And and there's no hint of, of a fallen world in these brochures. Um, you know, they, there's there's no suffering. There's there's no weariness from juggling many kids and doing the chores and grocery shopping. Uh, no dads dealing with teenagers who got home late. Uh, no uh, sickness. No young infants you know, spitting up on them, uh, no disappointments, no emotional problems, no infidelity, no victims of abuse, no hospital rooms, no hospice bed, no scenes of war or famine, much less any sense that God has cursed anything in this world with work or frustration or pain, sweat, tears. No, everything is great. They're all sitting at their Starbucks tables with their laptops enjoy, enjoying a latte and talking on their cell phone. I mean that that is reality according to Madison Avenue. But the Bible says there's a greater reality, and Paul is, I think, closer to the reality than Madison Avenue is. The fact is that following Christ can bring significant cost to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. We even had the death sentence within ourselves that we would not trust in ourselves, but God who raises the dead... Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him. Now listen, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Not only to believe in Jesus, not only to make a profession in Jesus, but also to suffer for Jesus. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Philippians chapter 3, same book, different chapter, that I may know Him, Jesus, and the power of His resurrection, and what? The fellowship of His sufferings. That's a strange oxymoronic way of saying it, right? We think of fellowship as something that's sweet, that's enjoyable. Fellowship of His sufferings. I fellowship with Jesus when things are dark, when things are bad, when things are hard when I'm crying, when I'm suffering, when I'm on my knees, that's where I find some of my sweetest communion time with Jesus, Paul's saying. Fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Colossians. You see it in Corinthians. You see it in Philippians. You see it in Colossians. Colossians 1.24 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh for your sake. I do my share on behalf of the body of Christ, which is the church. And then you have that strange part of this verse. In filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, is he saying that there's something short of Jesus' perfect work? No. But I think he's just simply showing the unity that we have with Christ and the sufferings that Christ entered into. They were but the beginning of a long train of sufferings that those of us who are in union with Jesus Christ, we participate too, and we are filling up the sufferings of Christ. That which Christ accomplished for us on the cross, we who follow in His train, we who take up our cross and follow Him, we are also filling up that full measure of sufferings. Nothing is lacking in Christ by that statement. We see it in the Psalms, the suffering of David. We see it in the historical books, the sufferings of the godly people. We see it in Revelation. The churches are afflicted. You know, a lot of times I like to read to you various things from uh, Voice of the Martyrs, just to remind us of what's going on in the world and in the church. Uh, In last year, last spring, there was a video that came out. uh, And even when that video came out, it was over two years old when it was made public, but it it showed, uh, it was televised on Afghan TV, these people who converted to Christianity, and it showed them being baptized, it showed other people at a prayer meeting, and a great protest in Afghanistan erupted over it. Um, Even the deputy secretary of the lower house of the parliament, a guy named Abdul Sattar, S-A-T-T-A-R, Khawazi, K-H-A-W-A-S-I. He called for the public execution of these Afghan converts. And so many of the Christian converts in Afghanistan had to flee because now the sentence of death was on them. Listen to what one Afghan Christian who fled to New Delhi said. He said, quote, We do not know how the whole world, and especially the global church, is silent and closing their eyes while thousands of their brothers and sisters are in pain, facing life, danger, and death penalty, and are tortured, persecuted, and called criminals. You know, let me suggest to you that what our Afghan brethren are suffering is maybe closer to the New Testament experience than what we here experience in this country. And I say that not with the hope that you will have to go through these same sufferings, but I do want you to be prepared for them. One East European minister said that he had wished he had prepared his congregation better for the sufferings that they ultimately were going to endure this, of course, was, he was talking about what they endured through World War II and then later with the communists. And so I hope that this morning, as we think about the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings that Paul lists here, that we would be prepared. Peter tells us this. He says, don't let the fiery ordeal surprise you. Don't let the sufferings that happen catch you unaware Like something strange is happening to you. Like this wasn't supposed to happen. My friend, it was supposed to happen if it happens. And we need to be prepared. Don't be unaware of the sufferings of others. Pray for them. But also prepare yourself to enter into the humiliation of our Lord and Savior that you might also know of his fellowship. And also then in the end, his glory. Let's pray together.